The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the news from the Donbass as Russian forces continue their slow but deadly advance. We also discuss the latest updates on the energy crisis and look forward to the weekend when Russia looks likely to default on its foreign debts for the first time since 1918. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 23rd of June, day 120. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and economics reporter, Louis Ashworth. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. The the latest is, as we've seen for the last few weeks, which um, there's been a, a lot of heavy shelling, still uh, almost an uptick, I think, in the last few days. The Donbass is, is being absolutely destroyed the eastern part there what's left of severodonetsk is still getting absolutely mauled but all the the villages around there ukraine say that they they've announced this morning that they've had to pull pull out of two hamlets to the southeast of lisichansk so lisichansk is the is the town just west of severodonetsk separated by the river and on slightly higher ground so so easier to defend however um that is the that is a salient that pocket there the the severodonetsk lisichansk salient is is Surrounded by Russians to the east, north, northwest, and south and southwest as well. Um, so very, very tight in there. A lot of heavy fighting going on, heavy artillery shelling. And as uh, Ukraine said this morning, they've had to pull out of two hamlets just about five miles ish to the southeast of Lysychansk, um, which will probably see, well, undoubtedly, see that little bit of ground to Russia. That doesn't close the pocket off completely, but it is it is getting extremely tight in there. Elsewhere, more shelling in Kharkiv to the north. Civilians killed there, um, and uh, and in Mykolaiv um, to the south. So, Ukraine is saying that possibly the the action in the north around Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, is a is a bid by Russia to uh, to di- to get Ukraine to divert troops that way to deal with the the, the recent uptick in shelling there. I mean, they're not backing it up. Russia is not backing that up with any sustained ground assault to try and take retake any of the ground there or make a make a concerted push against Kharkiv as we saw in the first few weeks of the war. So it does seem like it, it's just uh, what's called nuisance shelling, which, which sounds a very light phrase, but it, you know, it's, not, it's not particularly not a great nuisance when there's 152 mil shells coming at you. Um, but yeah, the, the lack of any great ground backup suggests that it is, is a push there just to try and get Ukraine to divert resources north. In the south, uh, on Wednesday, we saw buildings hit by shells. A school was hit. By shells, and that um, that that has continued today. Reports of civilian deaths there as well. So a lot of a lot of artillery uh, going around the place. Um, Ukraine also announced Alexei Reznikov, the, the defense minister, announced in the last hour that the first of the U.S. HIMARS system, the high mobility artillery rocket system, the very long range range is great, accuracy is even better. So the very long range, very high high precision. Artillery is now um, in Ukraine with trained crews. He didn't say numbers. You wouldn't expect him to either. But that is um, that's a good move for good, good news for Ukraine to have such long range and, and high precision artillery. And also 
worth noting that um, the, the Germany are supplying now the the um, the Panzer Howitzer two thousand. The numbers there are are or they are going in. We expect them in in July. There's nothing to suggest that they are not going to be there for July. And equally, the Gepard anti-air so twin thirty-five mil cannons, very good at shooting down drones, um, helicopters. Uh, so good, good sort of close point air defence. So the Gepards are going in as well. Uh, should be there for for July. Elsewhere, just one more thing to note. Um, in uh, just a, a suburb to the northwest of Kherson, uh, please uh, forgive my forgive my pronunciation, but uh, Chornobaika. It's just it, literally the the blob uh, on the northwest bit of of Kherson, and Ukraine has been pushing in that that direction recently. Thought to be now about fifteen k's ish short of of uh, Kherson. Um, there's been an attack on the car of Yuri Tulyov, who's the leader of that or the self leader of that self-proclaimed area. Um, he was he was a former director of a local bus depot. He's now the, the leader of Russia's Russia's appointed leader for that area. He was his car was blown up. He was injured, not not killed. But it speaks of, as we've mentioned a few times on the pod, this this growing resistance to civilian led or 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 maybe maybe military led, but but resistance from the civilian population um, from from Ukraine which has taken particular focus in the South. And I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much. And Don, before we come back to you to talk about EU candidacy status for Ukraine, um, Louis, can I turn to you, Louis Ashworth? Uh, Germany has entered phase two of its three-stage emergency gas plan today. Can you tell us about this? Why have they done that? Hi, David. Yes. So, um, yeah, Germany's moved into the second phase of a sort of three-stage emergency gas plan. Um, we'd sort of known that this was coming. So, so Robert Harbeck, who's the country's economic minister, um, announced in a statement on Sunday that this was this was going to happen. Um, so uh, this was expected, but that doesn't stop it being a kind of a, a, a big deal. So there's a few different elements to this plan. Um, and uh, one of the sort of main ones is that it involves reactivating uh, Germany's uh, coal plants. So that's obviously a big kind of controversial issue. You, you sort of have to feel a bit of sympathy for Robert Harbeck, who uh, you know is, is a green politician and uh, entered this government, uh, entered the German government coalition as a green, and is being forced to be the face of of the sort of you know reopening of of um, of coal plants. But that's obviously that's the hand that history has dealt him. Um, other other elements of this plan include um, uh, requesting that um, that Germans try and reduce their use of energy, um, and also. Um, Berlin's offering about uh, thirty, sorry, fifteen uh, billion euros of credit lines to um, storage facilities. So basically, that's going to be loans at very favourable rates that will allow the facilities to try and build up capacity ahead of the winter. Um, the reason this has had to happen, um, it, it was sort of expected this may occur at some point during the year anyway. Uh, what has occurred though is that Putin, in recent weeks, has really cut back on the amount of gas that's coming through the Nord Stream pipeline into Germany. Um, at the moment, it's at about forty percent of its normal capacity. That's a major blow, and it's clearly, you know, Putin putting some kind of pressure on the sort of the the energy windpipe to the West. It's it's a very conscious effort to squeeze the West, intensify this economic pain that's been occurring for the West as a result of the conflict in Ukraine, um, and so it's forced this action from the Germans. Um, significantly. Uh, step three in the German emergency plan would be to bring in rationing, um, in which case you would start to have a prioritisation of uh, usage of energy for households and um, and essential businesses, um, and other businesses would be told to try and cut down on their usage. Obviously, that's a very extreme step, and um, there's fierce opposition in Germany, which, of course, is a very... 
um, the business lobbies in Germany are extremely influential, as we well know. Um, they, uh, they, they will not be happy that, that this is on the horizon. But if Putin chooses to press ahead with, with reducing these flows, um, it, may, it may prove to be inevitable. So Robert Harbeck has said um, he, he hopes gas, gas rationing won't be needed, but said that he can't rule it out. And just has this affected any other European countries as well, or is or is is it the Germans who are taking the the sort of the full, the full brunt of it? Well, it's it's a pan continental thing. So so we've already, as we've discussed on previous podcasts, some countries have already been effectively cut off by Russia, and basically they have been countries that are already less reliant on Russian gas. So Russia's been kind of nibbling at the edges, and it's been less the case that in doing so it's been actually properly cutting countries off. Um, from from energy and causing energy crises, it's been it's been hitting countries that are more self reliant anyway, or more reliant on on other sources. So the, the the real kind of economic core of Europe that has been super reliant on on Russian gas, so you know Germany, Austria in particular, um, that remains kind of untouched until now and it's only now that uh that putin is beginning to sort of turn turn that screw um so obviously any action that germany takes is going to have influence across the whole continent i mean it's the it's europe's biggest economy by some distance and is and it's hugely influential um and particularly as germany seeks to pivot away from russia and find sources of energy from elsewhere that is going to have a very notable effect on on the global market, and that's something that obviously we've been seeing reflected a fair amount already in in the sort of soaring energy prices we've been seeing. Is is that market expectation um, and reflection of Germany's need for more diverse energy sources? Thank you very much, Louis, for that. Um, Dom, can I turn to you? Kiev has said it's waiting for the green light to receive EU candidacy status as European leaders meet in Brussels today. Uh, can you tell us about this? What, what might that mean for, for Ukraine and for the future of, of Europe? Yeah, I think this is a really fascinating one and worth, worthy of, of a much deeper dive, possibly when France is back, because he'll, he'll have some really good, uh, good insights into this. But basically, EU leaders are meeting today to discuss candidacy status for Ukraine and also Moldova. Um, the EU chief, uh, Charles Michel, says he says he expects they're going to take the decision um, today. Uh, President Zelensky has said it would be historic, which well, I mean, it will because it, it hasn't happened before. But I mean, it, it's historic because it will mean so much. Now, candidacy, candidacy status, it, there's a long way to go or, or there is some way to go between that and actually being in the EU. And um, it, it could take years. Albania made the point this morning. The foreign ministry of Albania said said it, you know, it, took, it could take years, which it can do. Um, so, so they're not there yet. But but let's suggest that Moldova and and Ukraine are are given membership of the European Union. I think it then becomes a really interesting question. I'll just posit this this idea: if this war that we're that we're all in, looking at now grinds down into a new line of control, a lot of where the where the forces are now. Let, let's let's say that Russia takes Luhansk Oblast and then sort of freezes because I, I really don't think it can go any further through the through the Donetsk Oblast. So it's not going to be able to take the whole Donbass. But but let's say it sort of sort of free, freezes where it where it is. Um, I don't think anyone would would believe any any lines from Moscow and from Putin to say, well, that's it. You know, job done. Uh, denazified, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. I think we then realise that he's taking an operational pause, the same as there was between 2014 and, and February the 24th this year, and, and we'll come back for more later. So if in that meantime, Ukraine and Moldova 
but Ukraine especially, are given uh, or achieve EU status, would would Putin attack? Is being a member of the EU enough to just put pause for thought in his mind? The EU has has defence aspirations. There is the Euro core um, that sort of yeah, mainly you know, French Germans or wobbles around, does a few exercises and what have you. Um, but it, but it does seek a greater role in defence terms. Um, there is no collective collective defence treaty in uh, anything to do with the EU at the moment. But I just wonder if if in years to come Ukraine's in in the EU, EU makes makes bigger louder noises about uh, about defence. I wonder firstly if that's enough to make Putin pause for thought before trying something in in the next few years. If this is what it comes to to try and take the whole of Ukraine. Or, or conversely, what does the EU have to do to make that pause for thought um, or to, to, to give rise to that pause for thought in, in Putin's mind? And, and, and do they have to go as far as to have a kind of NATO Article 5 type collective defence yeah, treaty, an actual treaty obligation? Or can they make all sorts of warm noises about friends always, always coming to each other's aid, et cetera, et cetera? I, I don't know. But it'd be very interesting to see if, um, as we see from Russia and China, to, to a great degree, actually, that they, they, they are pushing back against this post-war international settlement and the way that the world works and the, the organisations and the, the institutions and the structures and the, the international um, rules-based order. They're pushing back against that and they're trying to remould it in their, in their own image or in, in an image that suits them. If something like being a member of the EU or any other large, uh, similarly large body conferred a, a, a sort of defence defence arrangement as well. That, now, that would also be, be, a, be a development from the post, post-war settlement. So I think it's a really interesting time about um, are there going to be any stumbling blocks for EU and Moldova to, to gain, to become, not just candidates, but become members of the EU? And then and thereafter, what does that mean in defence terms? And I think this is one that we'll be unpicking um, for many, many days. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Dom, for that update. Um, Louis, can I come back to you quickly? Um, you mentioned that uh, you had some updates on the grain crisis. So just to remind our listeners, this is the the fact that the Russian blockade in the Black Sea means that Ukraine's grain cannot be exported, um, which threatens large parts of of, of, of Africa and, and other and and other countries with with um, with extreme hunger. Um, Louis, what's what's the latest there? So we saw yesterday that uh, infrastructure that was owned by two of the biggest uh, agricultural traders in Ukraine was severely damaged by Russian rocket attacks. This was in the Ukrainian port city um, of of Mykolaiv. Um, A lot of damage has been done. This compounds these pressures that we've been seeing. It's been very difficult for Ukraine um, in all different parts of the grain process, basically. It's been impossible for some farmers to actually work their land it's been very difficult to store uh, the grain that they produce because uh, silos and infrastructure have been damaged. And then it's been proving very difficult to actually then sell that onto the global markets because of the blockade in the Black Sea. And as we've discussed before, there's there have been talks and there are efforts by Ukraine to find different ways out of uh, to find different ways out of the country um, as alternatives to the Black Sea. So um, you know, road transport, freight have been two particularly um, notable ones. Also, the possibility of some kind of naval passage through the Baltic Sea has been another option that's been discussed. But for now, there's still severe disruption. So the, the UN estimates that there's about 20, 25 million tonnes of, um, of Ukrainian grain that just can't move at the moment. 
which is hugely significant because, as you said, this cascades onto global markets and creates world hunger. Um, there's a lot of doubt at the moment as to whether talks that are occurring over ending the blockade in the Black Sea will, will get anywhere. It's it's clearly something where there's a vested interest for the Kremlin to look as though they are being humanitarian on this front, but um, not much has occurred so far. They've been they've been talking for several weeks now about trying to find a way through for these grain exports. And um, the fact that, you know, as recently as yesterday, we're seeing rocket attacks sort of tells you everything you need to know about how much how much actual pro- progress is occurring there. Um, interestingly, though, as sort of um, uh, kind of um, corollary to that is grain prices and a lot of other commodity prices on global markets are now starting to ease a little bit. So if you recall in the direct aftermath of the invasion, we saw food prices spike to, to um, all time highs. We're now seeing a bit of easing. It's not. We're not hitting a level yet where we're thinking, oh, it's you know, it's it's huge relief, um, and the pressure's gone. But supply in some areas is starting to um, come come back online. Feels like completely the wrong word when you're describing something as, as sort of practical as as crops. But um, there are signs that harvest in Western Europe might be a little bit better than expected. Russia's harvest is still looking to be quite good. Conditions are improving a bit in the United States. These are all very positive signs because you never really know what's going to happen with with a, a crop harvest until quite late on. And even as recently as sort of a month ago, there were worrying signs that wheat harvests around the world were going to be quite bad. Um, signs are improving currently. So there, there is some hope there that some of the uh, sort of cascading pressures that the, the sort of deadlock over the Black Sea has caused could ease. Um, we'll have to see how those develop. Well, thank you very much, Louis. Dom, can I just turn back to you? You mentioned before we went on air that you had some updates on Germany's support for Ukraine. Um, would you like to take us through them? Yeah, well, I mentioned it at the start, and it's the provision of, of, the, of the heavy weaponry that um, has been caused for much gnashing of teeth in recent months. But uh, the, the uh, Panzerhauer's of 2000, the big, heavy, self-propelled 155mm artillery, are on are on the way, uh, if not some already in Ukraine, um, and um, and I also mentioned the Gepard anti-air defence systems. These things are uh, tracked as well, so you can you know, go go most places, and um, they are used for point defence. So they have they're twin thirty-five mil cannons that chuck out an enormous amount of ordnance, and they're so very good at, at, at taking down helicopters and drones. And actually, they they would they would ruin a, a fast jet's day if the pilot was on a on a predictable straight attack run um, towards the target, I would suggest. And they, they just put a huge amount of heavy metal in in the air. Um, there was some question originally about whether or not Germany would be able to, to supply the ammunition for that. Sorry, Switzerland would be able to supply the, the ammunition for that. However, I think that's largely been discounted now with this. this it's, not, it's not the most common nature of ammunition, 35 mil, but there are enough places that produce it such that it's not anticipated that there'd be a an immediate shortage of that. I think it's going with about 600,000 rounds. But um, if you have a look at any of this stuff online, then um, then you'll see that it goes through pretty pretty quickly. So, I mean, these, these are good news uh, stories from Germany. I mean, we've, we've bashed Germany. I've bashed Germany. Um, and we, we shouldn't forget that there's a lot of humanitarian aid, medical support, financial support. And also, um, so the, the defence watcher, Nicholas Drummond, makes the point that actually, if you look at, I mean, we're four months into this and the the change of direction from German politics has been incredible. Now, we, we all got, and rightly so, hot under the collar about 
about Germany being slightly cool on on supplying heavy weaponry. But considering that where where it came from, Schultz is new in power, new new chancellor, and he's had to take his party and his people with him. So so it is it is quite remarkable. We're not there yet, you know. Until we see these things in country in action and and um, you know having an effect, we should reserve judgment. But but I think I think this is a day for all the days that we've bashed Germany. I think this is a day to say, yeah, okay. I think I think they're uh, they've actually um, you know, put chalk on on the other side of the ledger here. So you know, coalitions coalitions can fracture very easily. Germany has been seen as a possibly a bit of a, a weak link there, but I, I just it's just worth putting it into the wider context of um, of how far they actually have come in four months. And if the uh, if the uh, the P two thousands and the and the Gepards are actually in country now or, or just on their way, then that is um, that is to be noted and welcomed. Well, thank you very very much, Tom. I realise we're sort of jumping around topics slightly today, uh, but Louis, can I come back to you? Um, I know you have to you have to run off soon back to the desk. Um, but we realised that uh, the promise of an upcoming Russian default is now uh, very close. Can you talk us through that? What does that mean, and how, how have we got how have we got here? Hi, David, and yes, apologies. Sorry, uh, print print news never really sleeps, so I will have to will have to return return to my desk quite soon. Um, yeah, I've been teasing your readers for for months with the possibility of a of a Russian default. Uh, we we obviously came very close in in April, and then it was averted at the last moment by Russia. Um, I at, at the risk of being you know, the, the 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 boy who cried default uh, this time it, it does seem to be for real. So uh, last month um, Russia missed making payments on on uh, missed about a hundred hundred million of bond coupon payments. Um, that triggered a thirty day grace period. Um, we are now hitting the end of that thirty day grace period. So to the to the absolute best of our knowledge, uh, those those uh, the payments were not made. Uh, Sunday is the deadline. So if if uh, Russia is not able to make good on those payments, or if if it doesn't emerge that they did in some way make those payments before Sunday evening, um, that is the moment at which, almost certainly, I would say, maybe let's say ninety five percent sure, because funny things can happen. That is the moment of a Russian default. Now, as we've kind of discussed before, um, there's sort of some weirdness around how this has all gone down. So initially um there were there were questions over whether Russia would sort of honor these debts at all. Um Moscow has made it very clear that they do wish to honor these debts and they do wish to pay uh foreign lenders back. Um what's made it very difficult is that uh the US has basically in- introduced sanctions effectively in the form of removing the exemption. And in doing so, made it so actually U.S. banks are not allowed to receive those payments. They're not allowed to act as kind of middlemen, and U.S. investors aren't allowed to receive um, the 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 money that Russia should be paying them for the bonds that they hold. That has effectively meant that for the last uh, five weeks or so, a default has been sort of a de facto thing. There's there's been it's it's been the assumption that we will hit this point. At which a default is is a technical inevitability, and it would seem as though Sunday night is that deadline. So uh, Russia's teetering there. You know, they're, they're not going down without a bit of a a, a bit of a um, sort of strop. I mean, Anton um, Sivirinov, the finance minister, was talking earlier today and said he said the situation looks like a farce. 
Um, he says Russia will once again attempt to make payments in rubles. Um, we've already seen that ruble payment would be considered to be a default because it's it's not compliant with the terms of these particular bonds. Um, but yeah, he's he's not very happy. Um, he said, you know, you can uh, we're we're doing the best we can to repay these debts. Um, he said, you can you can you, know, you can lead a. I'm paraphrasing him slightly here, but he's saying you can you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it. You can't make a drink. You know, we are, we are we are willing and able to make these payments. Um, and it's only the U.S.'s action that is preventing us doing that. So it's, it is a political point. The U.S., if it wanted to, could create an exemption and allow these payments to occur and allow Russia to avoid a default. They took the political decision, and it is, it is a political decision because Russia is willing and able to make these payments. Um, yes, the U.S. made this political decision to do this, and as a result, probably, as I said, let's put it at 95% or so, uh, Russia will enter its first international default in in a century uh as of the beginning of let's of next week let's say and if that happens um what i mean what will happen what what should our listeners uh be looking to what what will be the sort of the, the the news that you'll hear okay so russia has defaulted what then well this is an interesting point because i think default gives gives you sort of um you know impressions of everything stops all the action ends you know the music stops playing and everybody tries to figure out what's going on it's likely to be a bit more um fragmented and uh and sort of delayed than that one of the most significant things actually from a kind of the news and when is it occurring kind of perspective um is someone will actually have to sort of you know put their fingers on the pulse of the of the russian debt market and say you know, the patient died at X time, which is to say someone needs to actually determine that they've defaulted. Um, this m- will probably end up being uh, in the um, in in the in sort of Wall Street's area. They will there's there's a panel that determines when uh, when bodies are considered to have defaulted on their debts. I presume what will happen is they will hold an emergency meeting and they will then determine whether this constitutes a default. Um, ordinarily, in these situations. The default would be called by one of the ratings agencies, so um, you know, such as Moody's, S and P's. Um, they will not do that in this instance because they've already suspended all rating actions for Russia as a result of of EU EU sanctions. So ordinarily, they would be the kind of, uh, you know, as I said to earlier, they, they'd be the sort of doctor by the bedside saying when when it's all over. In this instance, they're not, and so it might be a bit more of a sort of delayed process before anyone actually officially calls this. Getting that technicality out of the way, um, the the impacts of default are unlikely to be felt immediately by uh, by Russian markets. To an extent, this is you know this this is already priced in. As I said, uh, it's it's sort of expected. Um, it also won't have a particularly immediate effect because Russia at the moment isn't having to tap up foreign markets very much for its debt. Um, where it will have an impact is if you see a bit further down the line a push from Russian corporations in particular to try and raise money on international markets or down the line for Russia itself to try and raise money on international markets in order to, say, fund the the sort of economic rebuild it's going to need after this conflict. Uh, at that point, you will find that a lot of Western investors will not be willing to touch uh, Russian corporate or um, sovereign debt. And uh, it'll be a kind of fully sort of hands, hands-off type situation there will then probably be a slow process of rehabilitation of Russia to global debt markets, but it will mean for a sort of a few year, a few year term, uh, Russia will be fairly frozen out of these markets. It will have fewer places it can tap for capital, 
And as a result, things will become more expensive for Russia. They will have fewer opportunities to sort of fund fund economic growth. And you have that kind of sort of slow tire puncture type effect on its economy. If I uh, if I could jump in there, please, and, and Louis, may I may I ask a question? Um, China, what what happens here? Russia Russia defaults. What's the relationship then with China? Do they view it is it good, bad, indifferent? Does it push Russia likely closer to China in economic terms? Does it how does it uh, what happens to the ledger vis a vis Russia and China and China and the rest of the world, please? Well, it's a it's a very good and big and difficult question. Um, We've seen, you know, there's a very interesting dynamic. Clearly, relations between um, between Xi and Putin are at times very close, but uh, China has been careful throughout this conflict to maintain a certain level of of distance between it and and Russia, economically speaking. There are all kinds of sort of areas of clashes. I mean, we, we you know, Russia and China have their own geopolitical tensions, um, particularly over Russia's sort of south southeastern regions a lot of these things are sort of very complicated now on on the sort of broad economic point that you're talking about um a couple of things to look at i suppose one of the big ones is is there's often an assumption that chinese businesses in particular and you know obviously china china does a lot as a state but it also has very powerful state-backed businesses that uh operate sort of autonomously um they are often assumed to be willing to be, I suppose what we would say, I suppose you might frame it as kind of immoral actors. We might say they are very willing to to sort of get their hands dirty, to get in the mix with Russian businesses, even at a time when a lot of Western businesses are trying to disengage. That's not entirely true. The United States is the world's biggest economy, and very few things matter more for an international business than being able to... to um, access the Western financial system, whether that is as a sort of participant or it's to sort of tap it for money or it's just to sort of operate within the sort of the the the, the trade networks that are sort of interlinked and based upon uh, Western finance. Chinese businesses do not want to lose access to that system. And we've seen hesitancy at several points during during this conflict from Russian lenders to lend money to Russia, to take this as an opportunity to make a land grab into Russia um, because of that, now that isn't to say we haven't seen China take advantage of this. Uh, it's uh, as I sort of said at the beginning, it's it's a difficult relationship, and it's it's a it's a relationship of complicated balances. China clearly economically is is the far stronger of the two, and we we have seen China trying to take advantage economically of the situation. We have evidence now as a result of Chinese import figures that China has been a really big buyer of Russian oil, which is discounted. For a while, it was unclear how much they were taking advantage of the fact that Russian oil was selling much cheaper than the global benchmark. Now we know they imported a a lot of it during May. Um, We've also seen several instances of of Chinese businesses taking bigger stakes in in Russian businesses, trying to get into that vacuum where which the west has left by by sort of pulling out on mass in the uh, in, in response to the invasion um in, in conclusion i suppose it it's very complicated and and it's a you know the, the they say you know keep keep your friends close your enemies close i wouldn't quite say that the putin and xi are enemies they have a lot of mutual interests they are in some ways you know mutually unified block against uh 
the the West as I suppose best represented by by the US and what the US wants in the world. Um, but that isn't to say that China isn't willing to sort of take some advantage of when of when Russia is having a difficult time. Um, I say the the other thing, just as a sort of addendum to that, is there was a lot of discussion at the onset of this conflict about the idea that um, this could sort of catalyze a division of the global economy between uh, sort of broadly Western bloc and a broadly sort of Russia China centered bloc. I don't think we have any more clear evidence that that's happening. In fact. One thing we're just seeing more and more in recent weeks, especially as um, a narrative around sort of central banks trying to get inflation under control uh, becomes more and more prominent, uh, is that the, the the dollar remains just incredibly powerful. It's 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 only reinforced how vital the dollar is to the global financial system, and I, I don't think yet. It may be something that takes longer to become clear. I don't think yet that we're clearly seeing that sort of alternative financial system emerge but there's no doubt that this this will be accelerating that that schism if if it is if it is appearing at all thanks and and if i may just just one and a half final questions i I had one question then you just something you just said there about basically about the reserve currency i mean what if if russia so my question is what strings are left so russia that had the swift string snapped They've now had the default strings snapped. What strings are left holding Russia in the international community of, of I know, trusted economic actors, I guess, um, whatever, whatever the easiest shorthand is. Um, and and if, it, if it chooses to, if Russia chooses to move away from the international order as it stands at the moment and try and get closer to Russia, try and try and move away from the dollar being the reserve currency. What what signs should we look out for to see if they if they were trying to do that, trying to push the um, yeah, Rubenimbi as, as the as the world's reserve currency? Or, or are we too, just so far away from that? That's a fanciful idea. On your on your first question, I think the the most significant part of this remains energy, and it's it's you know it's been the big theme of this conflict for the sort of wider world is how essential Russia is for the global commodity markets. There's not, you know, there's there's no real severe sanctioning. There's no real cutting off of Russia from the West. And there's no there's no real disconnect occurring until you end that reliance on, on Russian energy. It remains so essential. And, you know, as we were discussing earlier in the podcast, um, this is a very hot and active topic for, for Germany right now. Um, at the moment, we have this commitment um, from the from the EU to sort of by the end of the year make illegal seaborne um, seaborne transport of Russian oil into the into the bloc. Um, if this all happens, and and Europe finds a way to genuinely transition away from wean itself off Russian oil, that will be a very significant sanction because we're expecting that to coincide with a dip in global demand as a result of probably a general severe global slowdown that that will damage russia that will be the point at which russia's um so this this what's been referred to as vladimir putin's kind of cash machine the fact that he has these huge companies constantly drawing in huge export revenues that's the point at which finally you'll actually see an impact there because you can fiddle around the edges a lot you can cut russia off from certain schemes you can you can freeze it out from from uh, a lot of ways of interacting and dealing with the western system but as long as yeah, money is is pumping back towards towards Russia just as fast as as oil is coming the other way. 
you're never really having a full financial disconnect. You're never really laying on sanctions as, as hard as you can. And you know, this is the the huge political question that, that we face. And that that is the kind of the the, the crucial point. I, I actually was discussing with, with David briefly earlier that I think one of the most interesting things actually right now is we have all these commitments about um, transitioning away from Russian oil, about trying to end reliance. Um, I would be very, very interested to see what happens when we hit a point, say, if in a few months from now we see the conflict uh, end or de-escalate or in some way there's a, there's a thaw or someone steps back, what happens then to countries' commitments about about oil? Is that the point where, where Germany, you know, at that point, huge inflation, huge business upset, it'll be staring down a recession, Schultz, no doubt, will be thinking about his own political position. Is that the point at which he might become a bit more lenient? And he might say, actually, you know, say Russia has made this concession. We, therefore, will accept a bit more oil. Uh, it's, it's, it's a real sort of question. I think, you know, there's countries are walking towards the brink on this topic. And it's hard not to think that they would be easy. It would be easy to encourage them to step back if they were given that opportunity. So I think that's something that economically is going to be very important to watch over the coming months. Um, on the point about uh, fragmentation of the global financial system, um, you know, people often talk about this decline in use of the dollar. Uh, the, the actual bit that's very rarely spoken about with that is the decline in use of the dollar doesn't coincide so much with an explosion of the renminbi or, or other currencies. It's actually the, the growth of the euro is a huge part there. And actually, when you're talking about dealings between Chinese businesses and Russian businesses, it's fascinating how often actually those are euro-derived relationships. Um I think it's going to be one of those things where people are going to just keep watching, looking at those sort of market share feels like a reductive word, but just looking at the share of of the dollar in global transactions and just just seeing if that does begin to tilt in the coming years. Um, it's going to be a glacially slow process because the the dollar is so embedded. But if this is if this fragmentation is occurring, it, it will show up in transactional data. You'll see. The euro and the dollar will become a smaller part of of uh, sort of all global financial um, action, and perhaps then, yeah, you see you see China's currency sort of gaining gaining some influence there. But I I don't expect a sort of short, sharp kind of break. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Louis, for your time. We've kept you far too long, I realise. So, so thank you again. Uh, and if you've got questions for about economics or um, and, and gas and, uh, and and all of that, please do DM. And when we have Louis on again, we'll put your questions to him. So thank you, Louis. Um, this brings us up to twenty twenty to two London summer time. Um, uh, Dom, I just have one question from you from a listener. Um, this this is cycling back now to weapons. I'm afraid um, this is from Lawrence, and he's got a question on uh, heavy weapons and heavy weapons delivery to to Ukraine. Um, his essential question is, what kind of support and logistics need to be set up to support these systems? Do you need extra vehicles? Uh, what, what other things do you need to get them to work? And uh, how much do, do, does all this extra material around around the heavy weapon, weapon systems actually make a difference? Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's one that we that we just skirt over so often um, to our peril. But but yeah, the logistic tail of, of all this is, is critical. And we've seen that We've seen that played out in front of us. You see what happens if you've got some very nice shiny tanks uh, that you push up front, and um, 
and a poor logistics support system behind it. I mean, logistics is absolutely critical for all the for all the, the, the jibes I throw that way at blanket stackers and what have you. And it's because I've got very good friends in the logistics. None of them bloody listen to this, though, do they? But anyway, never mind. Um, yes. So I put a lot of jibes at the, the loggies, but they are absolutely critical. And that, and it's it's a it's a very long tail. Um, you need either uh, a lot of rail, uh, which is what Russia prefers. Uh, it's a lot easier to carry heavy heavy freight with rail, or you need um, lo- load uh, so a low loaders to carry vehicles, tanks, and, and artillery pieces, and so on, so that they don't uh, uh, they don't wear out all their the, the tracks and, and all the rest of it. They're not great for going long distances on uh, on paved surfaces, so so it's a lot easier to stick them on a low loader or on rail and, and move them that way. And then the 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 um, the ammunition itself i mean that takes a huge amount of organization and movement and of course it's it's very very heavy so you need all the infrastructure just to physically lift it on and off the, the vehicles and that's just the that's just the stuff and i'm not going to go over i haven't got time today to talk about all the different components that go out to make a capability but remember having the stuff and having the ammunition is only one or two small parts of it you need the training now we've seen a lot of training being done in poland and germany on on these systems and and others and and training is talked of quite widely you mentioned yesterday how boris johnson says that britain's going to be training ten thousand um, ukrainian infantiers every 120 days that's a that's a plan yet to get to kick off but hopefully soon so training is absolutely vital uh and the the, the mechanics the the electrical mechanical engineer sort of side of your of your military to keep this stuff going so the the logistics of it is is critical we've seen russia try to find and stop these supplies coming in from the west they they're in, using what's left of their precision guided munition arsenals to try and destroy the warehouses to try and destroy the railheads through which these things are transiting i think we're going to see an uptick of that in the next few days now that um ukraine has said that high mars are in the country and that um and the gepards and the the uh, panzer howitzer 2000 are on the on the way i think we'll see an uptick in in russian air launched uh, rocket and missile strikes in the west of the country um because these these resupply lines are so powerful so so critical and there's very little you can do with a with a a high-end um artillery piece or tank if it's if it's running out of not just the ammunition but all the petrol or lubricants and everything else to keep it going and that that's before you even get to the crew and and make sure that they know what they're doing that they are fed and watered and rested and all, all that kind of stuff so logistics um is is what we've seen play out here. Um, the old military phrase of amateurs talk tactics and professional talk logistics. I mean, this, this war is, 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 is made for that phrase. And I think we're only going to see that play out to, to an even greater degree now that these heavy weapons, fewer in number, but um, the, the debate between numbers and accuracy is, is, a, is a live one and one worthy of uh, examination. So now that these heavy weapons are, are flowing into Ukraine, we're really going to see this play out and see how these logistic chains are vital and, and will be sought and attacked by Russia and necessarily defended in some strength. And I mean by putting air defence assets to the west of the country, which might denude it from the from the front line for Ukraine, because you've got to, got to, got to look after this stuff when it comes into the country, where you where you look after it in the in the big sort of warehousing hubs and the rail the rail hubs you've got to look after it because if it doesn't get to the front line it's obviously useless so no logistics absolutely critical and we're going to see that played out um very much so in the next few weeks well thank you very much dom for that answer and thank you for sending in the question lawrence um 
I believe that's the really the we've got to the end of our time here today. So, Tom, can I just ask you very quickly for your final thoughts? What should our uh, listeners be looking for over the next day? Over maybe maybe even looking to the weekend and the week beyond. Well, I think I mean it is it is allied to that to the answer I just gave there. I think we're going to see a lot of strikes in the west of the country. Lviv has not been hit. That's right over in the west by the Slovakian border. Not been hit for for some time now. I think we're going to see an uptick there. I think we're going to see possibly some more action, as we saw a couple of days ago, Ukraine rooting out um, Russian spies, in their words, to to, to find these people who are going around looking for these uh, logistic hubs. So I think there's going to be more action in there. So I I would expect to see more um, arrests and more... um, uh, more news there from the from the Ukrainian government about um, about these these um, the sort of fifth columnists, if you like, who who are looking for these resupply lines, and um, yeah, more more strikes across the rest of the country. Not forgetting, of course, that, that I think the, the they're by no means finished in the Donbass. That's going to that that could well intensify in the next few days. Now that there seems to be a, a mini breakthrough, the, the, today's. British Defence Intelligence Assessment says that they've advanced uh, about five Ks in, in four days. So pretty much what we've been saying about a kilometre a day. But, you know, there's not a lot of kilometres left in that Severodonetsk pocket. So I think we are approaching some sort of um, end game there. Um, I hate using the phrase game. Of course, it's not a game, but, you know, a resolution to that to that fight. Ukraine seems to be pulling out its, uh, its people where it can efficiently do so and uh, without allowing the front to collapse. So a lot of fighting in the east, but I think we're going to see an increase in fighting across the whole of the country over the next few weeks. And we, as we really step up, as the, as the war grinds to an, an attritional line in that east, I think there's going to be a lot more violence across a lot more of the country in the next few weeks. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. 